we have sung this song that we have not done in a while uh, because the gospel is oftentimes portrayed um, through um, an invitation to come to Jesus as to a feast that Jesus is preparing for us, uh, that he wants to feed us, that he wants to supply for us uh, the hungers of our souls. And this morning we will see how the image of being invited to a meal, of establishing fellowship with Jesus, is a picture that Jesus uses to call his people back to himself. Have you heard the phrase, he may be wrong, but never in doubt? People use it to describe someone who is confident, even if they're wrong. In our society, people like uh, others uh, or people who are confident. We feel that confidence inspires hope. Uh, Confident people can sell well. Our society thinks that confident people often seem to be more successful. But being confident in the wrong things... Friends, is a recipe for disaster. Uh, Be confident in things that don't matter uh, can be very misleading. Uh, And this was the case with an entire church, uh, the church of Laodicea. This church was confident about its well-being, but its confidence was deeply, deeply mistaken and misplaced. And this morning, I invite you to open God's Word to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we'll be reading verse 14, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 22. If you are uh, visiting with us this morning and did not bring a Bible with you, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you and open the Bible to page number 1030, 1030. Here is God's word for us this morning as we are looking to a, one of the messages that Jesus wrote to a church Uh, in the the church in Laodicea. Here is God's word for us this morning. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer 
asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. As we approach the revelation that you have entrusted to Jesus Christ to pass on to his servants and to the churches, Father, we pray that this word that we have read would bear fruit in our hearts in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that Christ would dwell in us and among us. May we heed your word today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, today we come to the close of an important section in the book of Revelation, uh, a book uh, or a section that includes seven custom-designed messages from the exalted Jesus for each of the seven churches. These messages reveal to us how deeply uh, Jesus cares about the life of local churches. He has sent a special message, uh, a personally designed uh, message to each of these congregations. Jesus cares deeply about what is happening in each of these seven churches, as we have seen. In the previous uh, messages, um, we have seen not only how Jesus cares about each of the churches, but in the, in the previous messages, we have seen what exactly Jesus cares about the life of the local church. Um, in, in these messages, we saw that Jesus cares about how a church loves. We saw how Jesus cares about how a church is prepared to endure suffering, how a church resists compromise and false teaching, how a church stays vigilant and awake, spiritually speaking, and how a church obeys the word of Christ. But today we come to the last of the seven messages, and uh, the message we get in this particular letter to Laodicea, we get to see that Jesus cares about a church's spiritual sight, about a church's spiritual perception. The church in Laodicea, had none of it. The church in Laodicea had none of it. It was to- the church of Laodicea was totally self-deluded. It had high views of itself. It thought of itself as secure, satisfied, needing nothing. But the message she receives from Jesus about her condition was a total shocker. For Jesus describes this church as being wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let me ask you, how would you like to be a member of a church that receives this assessment from Jesus? Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. The church in Laodicea not only receives this harsh confrontation. First of all, not all the, not, this is not the, the only church that receives confrontation from the Lord. We've seen other churches in this set of churches uh, that receive confrontations from Jesus. But there's something unique about Laodicea. If other churches also received confrontation, they also received positive affirmation. Laodicea is the only church that receives only criticism, no positive affirmation. There is nothing positive 
that Jesus is able to identify in this church. Not one. Remember the church in Sardis? Uh, They had a reputation of being alive, yet they were dead. That was a pretty bad thing to hear. But even in Sardis, Christ was able to identify a few in the church who did not have their garments stained. And that was a picture that they, there were still a few in the church who were obedient to Jesus. They were following Jesus faithfully. And Christ asked the church in Sardis to strengthen what remained good in that church. But in Laodicea, there's no one who has kept himself faithful to the Lord. The entire church, without exception, is confronted by its pitiful condition of being spiritually impoverished, spiritually blind, spiritually shameful. The problems of the church of Laodicea were similar to the church in Sardis, but Laodicea was worse off. Yet even though this is the condition of the church in Laodicea, even to this kind of church that was on the verge of being cast off by Jesus, nevertheless, even to this kind of church, Jesus sends them a message and calls them back to Christ. In this message, we see how the exalted Christ is calling back a church that has lived in a shameful way, a church that has become poor and blind. And yet, if they would heed the words of Jesus, even this church, even this church could have a bright future. As we look at this church, we get to learn that Jesus cares deeply about the local church, wanting to purge off any confidence in things that don't last. How does Jesus call back to himself a church that is on such a verge, so close to the cliff of being cast off? Let's look at how Jesus is calling back a church to himself. The first point we will see about the message that Jesus gives to Laodicea is that Jesus reminds us of who he is. This is the first point we see as Jesus is calling back this church to himself. Jesus reminds us of who he is. Now, Jesus started every one of the messages with the same uh, point, reminding the churches of who he is. And his self-description in each of the letters matches what the church needed to hear. And to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says the following about himself. Verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In other words, the one who is bringing this confrontation about their pitiful, wretched condition, the one who is bringing this confrontation is not simply a random person off the street. He's he's someone whose evaluation we cannot ignore or dismiss. Jesus calls himself the Amen. Now, to call yourself the Amen is very unusual. This is a Hebrew word. Literally, Amen is a Hebrew word. It's transliterated into English. It it meant truth. Uh, In the Old Testament, God is at one point described as the God of Amen or the God of truth. When Jesus taught on the earth, he often said to people, uh, Amen, Amen, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, For Jesus to take this word, Amen, and say that now this word describes him as a title, uh, this is a big deal. 
It means that Jesus is the truth. Jesus says that he, about himself that he is the truth. He's never wrong. He's never off track. His assessments are always true. Now, why would this be important for Laodicea to hear? Because the church in Laodicea had very good impressions about themselves. And Jesus was going to blow up their impressions about themselves. And one of the objections that can come in a situation like this is, well, who are you to say all this to me? Or whose word does it really count as true? How do I know that my self-evaluation is not better than your evaluation of me? And Jesus says, I am the Amen. I am the truth. I am the one who establishes truth. Oh, friends, Jesus wants the church to know that his view is the view that really counts. The next title Jesus gives about himself is that he is the faithful and true witness. This title of Jesus reminds the church in Laodicea that Christ's role on earth has been a role of revealing God's word to God's people, to the earth. In other words, Jesus is faithfully revealing to us the word that God has entrusted to him. The reason why we can trust Jesus is because he and he alone has come from heaven down to earth to tell us of what he has seen in heaven, what he has heard from the Father, and faithfully tell us what God is like, what he has revealed for us. Jesus is a faithful and true witness. And then the third title Jesus gives himself is, he is the beginning of God's creation. This word for beginning of God's creation can also be translated as the origin of God's creation or the ruler of God's creation. In other words, Jesus says about himself that he is the one through whom creation came into existence. All that we see originated in Christ. Oh, friends, for someone to make that kind of claim about himself, I am the origination the origin of God's creation. Oh, friends, no normal human being would be able to claim that about himself or herself. He would be either a lunatic, a liar, or he would indeed be what he claims to be, as C.S. Lewis put it. Friends, Jesus claims these high values, these high these high descriptions about himself so that the church in Laodicea would recognize that the one who's speaking to them is the very one who brought all things into existence. Why would this matter for the church of Laodicea? Why would this be relevant? Well, there's another place in the Old Testament where God's people have been exposed as being poor and blind. In the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah 41 and 42, God promises after exposing the poverty of his people and after exposing the blindness of his people, God promises to alleviate their poverty, their poverty and their blindness because he is a God in charge of all creation. That there's no other God besides him. So here Jesus, echoing the, the pattern of, of the Old Testament dialogue between God and his people, Jesus is claiming the same prerogative, the same description as God had in the Old Testament. Jesus reminds the church in Laodicea that he is in charge of all creation. 
He is able to heal the condition of their poverty and their blindness if only this church would listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus wants the church in Laodicea to remember who he is, that he has the credentials to expose what is truly and really true about themselves. Friends, ask yourself, do you believe that Jesus has the power, the credentials to expose what is true about yourself? Do you believe that the words of Jesus are more weighty than your own self-impression, than your own self-evaluation? Here's uh, the evaluation that Jesus makes about a, a church in ancient times in the first century. Here's the second point we see. After Jesus exposes, um, it, after Jesus uh, reveals who he is, the second point we see is that Jesus exposes the truth about them. Jesus exposes the truth about them. When we look at the details of what Jesus exposed about this church, it's easy for us to stay stuck on the very first imagery that Jesus gives about this church, namely that it was lukewarm. Jesus says, you are lukewarm. Now, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, the passage sort of tells us, neither cold nor hot. Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, it's easy for us to read these words and simply focus on uh, making sure that we are not a lukewarm church. But what does that mean? Uh, Whenever you hear, oh, we're going to preach about the church in Laodicea, most Christians already know, okay, we're going to preach about being lukewarm. What does that mean? It means being more committed to Jesus. Some people may have heard the following explanation. That's here Jesus would rather have people be unbelievers then be somewhat halfway, a, a halfway committed Christian. That cold means being a, a non-Christian, a, a person who has nothing to do with God, and hot being mean, mean, meaning being on fire for Jesus. If you've heard preachers describe these particular descriptions of hot and cold as being either a non-Christian or a truly committed, on-fire Christian, just don't stay in the middle. If you've heard that explanation, I just want to tell you... Uh, Discard it. That is a very bad application of this imagery. Jesus in this passage says that both being hot or cold are descriptions that are good. And this, this is an image. This is an image from, uh, from, from dining experiences, especially in ancient times. We might appreciate that even today. In ancient times, good banquets offered either cold drinks or hot drinks. There was no in-between. There was no uh, drinks that were just halfway. And, and if, if there was a, such an experience, um, people would just not drink it. And in this passage, Jesus is using the imagery of dining. We're going to see the image of dining is going to show up again at the end of this letter, at the end of this, this message to Laodicea. And it's going to show up again at the end of the book of Revelation. Here Jesus assumes um, that he is about to have a drink. And uh, the drink that he's about to have is neither cold, which would be refreshing, nor hot, which would be uh, healing or, whole, or, or warming up. This, this drink that Jesus is about to have is, is neither one of the other. And not only is it neither one of the other, it's so bad that Jesus is about to spit it out. 
it, it's a drink that does not meet the taste of Jesus. And it's a drink that not only doesn't meet the taste of Jesus, it's a drink that Jesus cannot tolerate. He's about to spit it out. And Jesus says, you are that drink. You are, as a church, neither cold nor hot. You do not meet my tastes. Not only that, you do not meet what I'm able to endure, what I'm able to put up with. My friends, Jesus endured the cross. But Jesus would not endure a lukewarm Christian. Jesus would not endure a church that was in the middle, between hot and cold. But what does it mean to be lukewarm, to be neither hot nor cold? Uh, Jesus, again, uses this imagery to tell the congregation that he is about to spit them out, that he's about to reject them, that they are disgusting to him, spiritually speaking. What does it mean to be in such a condition that it would cause Jesus to tell the a whole church that they are disgusting to him? What has this church done? Well, look at verse 17. Verse 17 reveals to us what was so deeply wrong with this church that it caused Jesus this aversion of saying, I'm about to spit you out. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now this is shocking to hear. The church that Christ described as wretched and poor was actually rich in the eyes of the world. The church not only boasted in its being rich, but also in needing nothing. Here's a church that had placed its confidence, its security, and its sufficiency in its possessions and in what it could count. Friends, our culture values being self-sufficient. Our culture values being self-dependent or independent. Our culture values uh, needing nothing or needing no one's help. The church in Laodicea had every one of these characteristics. The church was evaluating only what they could count, only what they could see, namely their possessions. In the eyes of Christ, this rich church was actually a wretched and pitiable church. Their physical riches did not translate into spiritual riches. While they had riches that could be proved and counted on financial reports, they had not had the riches that Jesus offers. They were more excited about their possessions that they acquired rather than the riches that are found in Jesus. Now, friends, let me be clear. Having possessions is not sinful. Being rich is not bad. But putting your confidence in riches, being more excited about your possessions than about Jesus, that's a red flag. And think about yourself. Are you more excited about material possessions than by the riches that are given to us in Jesus? Even if those riches cannot be counted by financial reports? I understand we, it's hard for us to get excited about things we don't see, about things we don't touch, about things we can't count in financial reports. It's hard to live 
by faith and be excited by the things that can only be perceived by faith. I get that. It's not as easy. But friends, the Bible tells us that in Jesus, God wants to give us the riches that will never be taken away from us. An inheritance that is everlasting. The church in Laodicea seemed to have been more excited and confident. Not about those riches that are perceived by faith, but about the things that they were able to see with their hands and and touch with their eyes. See with their eyes and touch with their hands. The church in Laodicea was not only wretched, pitiable, and poor, but was also blind and naked. They lacked the ability to see themselves clearly. They lacked the ability to see their spiritual condition. They were naked, which pointed to shame. You know what's sad? It's not the first time the people of God have been indicted with a similar message. In the book of Isaiah, God has confronted his people. In chapter 42, God says of Isaiah, God says, Who is blind? But my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send, who is blind as my dedicated one and blind as a servant of the Lord, he sees many things but does not observe them. Well, friends, here in the book of Revelation, Jesus brings up this imagery again of, of his people being blind. Jesus told people who had physical sight that they were lacking spiritual sight. Yet people think even today, that physical sight is enough. They were confident in their ability to see themselves well in the eyes of God. But Jesus says they have totally missed their true condition. And Jesus also says they were naked. Being naked was a sign of of shame. Later in the book, Christ reveals that the the great Babylon, uh, Babylon the Great, which boasted in its riches, will be stripped away of her possessions and become naked and ashamed. In the eyes of Christ, the church in Laodicea was already described as naked. In Revelation 16, Jesus gave the following blessing, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. How sad that the church of of Laodicea They were not ready for the coming of Jesus. They were the very opposite of what Jesus is is warning people not to be like. They had all this world could offer. But they were poor spiritually. They thought that they saw what truly matters. But they were blind. They thought that they were secure. But they were wretched and pitiable. They thought that they could... That they were honorable, yet they were living a life that was full of shame in the sight of God. If the Lord chose to bless a church with financial resources, that can be a wonderful blessing as long as those blessings do not become a lure that shifts our sense of dependency away from Christ. As long as we don't place our joy in those possessions, as long as we don't take our cues from those possessions, as long as we don't assume that because we have possessions, We lack nothing. If we have everything this world could offer us, but we don't consider our ongoing need for Christ, our ongoing need for the spiritual riches that only Jesus can give us, if we don't pursue those riches that Jesus offers us, 
those that cannot show up on financial reports, any of us can take the path of the church of Laodicea. Here's a church that was lukewarm because they lost their sense of spiritual perception. They misevaluated themselves. They preferred to trust their own self-assessment and the assessment that defined success by the standards of their city. Oh, friends, how easy it is for us to evaluate ourselves by the standards of our society, by the standards that we find as, as enough or good enough to be uh, successful and safe and well. Jesus exposed the truth about them. But thirdly, a third thing that we see in this message, uh, a third point that we see is that Jesus offers the solution to their wretchedness. This is a beautiful part about Jesus. He not only exposes our wretchedness, he also tells us the way out of it. If we would heed his words. What's the solution to their wretched and pitiful condition? Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the, sh- and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking every one of the, the areas that this church was lacking. Poverty, clothing, a blindness. And Jesus says, I can provide for you everything you need to get out of your condition. Now, you may be surprised to hear that Jesus is calling this church to buy things from Christ. Uh, do you pay money to get stuff from Jesus? Oh, no, that doesn't work, friends. Even when we, when we collect the offering here every Sunday morning, it's not somehow that we are paying dues to Jesus or doing, paying our dues to the church. That does not, that's not the way it works. We cannot buy stuff from Jesus in the sense like doing a business uh, transaction with Jesus. But the point that Jesus gives here is the following. Jesus is advising the church to change the supplier and begin dealing with Christ and get what Christ offers. You see, Laodicea was known for its riches. Laodicea was a a city so resourceful and rich that when one of the major earthquakes hit the city and devastated the city, the Roman Empire offered imperial funds to rebuild the city of Laodicea. And, 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 And that was offered to many cities in that region. Laodicea was one of the cities, the only one that we can think, that we know of, that refused the imperial help. That's how rich they were. They said, thank you, Rome. We don't need your help. We can redo this ourselves. The city of Laodicea was also known for its um, black wool industry. It was also known for uh, to being a place that produced eye ointment so that people's eyes could be healed. And Jesus is literally saying, listen, church, you have been going to the city to deal and get transactions with the city. You have been getting your riches from the city. You have been getting your eye ointment from the city. You have been getting your clothing from the city. I'm telling you, change your supplier. Come to me for that. Do your business with me. Jesus is telling this church, get back to me. Get your values. Get your resources from me, not from the city. Now, what does Jesus supply us with? He says, I am ready to give you 
gold refined by fire. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Jesus is not saying, oh, I want you to be poor. Jesus wants the peace people to be rich, but with the riches that he gives, with the riches that can never be taken away from us, with the riches that have been tested through fire, the riches that fire can never take away, the riches that, that this world can never take away from us. Friends, the riches that Jesus provides, friends, are riches that will not pass away. This means that the the gold has been purified. It's not the gold that Babylon offers. It's the gold of the new Jerusalem. It's the gold of the new creation that God is promising His people to give to them. In other words, Jesus says, why do you seek to be rich only by the riches that this world is offering you? Come and get the riches that I can give you. Jesus. White garments. Jesus says, buy from me white garments. And this is the exact opposite of what was known in Laodicea. The book of Revelation, white garments was a symbol of a life cleansed by sin. The washing of our garments from the stain of sin is through the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus can wash away our sin and make our garments white again. Getting white garments may be a symbol of the purity that we need to ask Jesus to accomplish for us so that as followers of Christ, we may walk in that purity. So obtaining white garments from Christ means asking Jesus to give us the purity and the obedience that enables us to live the word of Christ. Notice what's the benefit of getting the white garments so that you're cl- your so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Living in sin brings us shame. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever experienced that? Living in sin brings us shame. Living a life that compromises our faith brings us shame. We need to turn to Christ and ask Him to give us the kind of faith in Jesus that lead us to live a life of obedience to Christ. And then Jesus says, by eye ointment, salve from me so that you may see. The words of Jesus are part of opening the eyes of this congregation. When we receive the message of Jesus, when we, when we hear what he exposes in us about ourselves, we can turn a blind eye to it, as the saying goes. Or we can turn to Jesus and say, Lord, open the eyes of my heart to see myself as you see me. Open my eyes to see my need of you. Open my eyes to see my spiritual condition. Friends, if you don't see your spiritual condition, the best thing you can do is ask God to open your eyes, to see you, to see yourself as He sees you. Jesus offers these three exchanges to help the church in Laodicea to fight off their their lukewarmness, their lack of spiritual sight, and their pitiful condition. Oh, friends, to change their supplier for riches, for dealing with their shame, for dealing with their spiritual sight problems, Jesus is able to be all that for this congregation. But it doesn't stop here. It's not merely what Jesus offers as a solution uh, for their wretched state. Jesus also offers a hopeful perspective. And this is a final point of the message we see this morning. Jesus offers a hopeful perspective. Perspective. 
Here's what Jesus says for the remaining of this letter to the church in Laodicea. Get the right perspective on what motivates Christ to correct us. Get the right perspective on what motivates Christ to correct us. In verse 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. In other words, the language of confrontation that is so strong in this letter that may lead us to think that somehow Christ hates this church. Oh no, this is a sign of love. This hard confrontation is actually a sign of God's love for this church. Correction and discipline are motivated by love. To love well is to correct and to discipline what is wrong. Friends, don't buy the lie of our culture that says that confronting sin is unloving. Such a lie is widely promoted in our society today. But Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So get the right perspective about what Jesus is doing in this correction. Then make some practical changes. Make practical changes. So, so I hear, we hear what, this, what Jesus is telling this church. So what now? Jesus says to this church, be earnest and repent. And then he tells us, reestablish your fellowship with me. These are the three practical changes that Jesus is, is asking this church to do. Be earnest, repent, reestablish fellowship with me. Christ's love not only confronts, but it calls people to be earnest, to repent. The call to be zealous or to be earnest could be translated in the following way. Be intensely serious about something. In other words, don't take lightly this call to change. Hear it with seriousness and be eager to change. The fruit of repentance, friends, grows in us when we take the confrontation of sin seriously. Oh, how often the lack of true repentance shows itself in lack of eagerness to change, in lack of zeal to turn away. Because we treat sin lightly, we also treat repentance lightly. And Jesus says, be zealous. Be zealous. And then he calls people to repent, turn away. Turn away from the misdirection that you have been going in, the misevaluation that you have been pursuing. Turn away. But then the third step, practical step is reestablish your fellowship with Jesus. And Jesus gives here a beautiful imagery, a beautiful picture of inviting someone to a meal with Jesus. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. How often we may have heard this verse used in evangelistic appeals as if Jesus is calling non-believers to give their life to Jesus. Well, friends, this is not what's going on in this letter. Jesus is giving this call not to non-believers. He's giving this call to the church. Jesus appears in the life of this church, not inside the church, but on the outside. He's on the outside of the door of this church. He's knocking to this church and says, Church, I've been out of fellowship with you. I'm knocking on your door. Would you open? I want to dine with you. I want to have fellowship with you. It's being zealous, repenting, and reestablishing the fellowship with Christ. This church has become so complacent, so, so self-satisfied, 
so self-confident that they didn't need Jesus to keep running as a church. They didn't feel like they needed Jesus to keep existing as a church. Now, they may have not said it so crassly. They may have not created a billboard putting out there that they don't need Jesus anymore. They weren't that crassly uh, pushing Jesus out of the door. But by their enthusiasm and confidence and self-security in the things that don't last, by recognizing that they had all they needed and that they did not realize they needed Jesus, this church, in effect, functionally, was kicking Jesus out. Friends, he is knocking on the door of the church in Laodicea and says, if anyone in this church would hear the call and open the door, Jesus would promise to come in and eat with him. Friends, Jesus wants to reestablish fellowship with any believer, with any church that has treated Jesus poorly, has assumed Jesus to be there, but has never actually made Jesus to be at the center of their existence. When we are confronted with our sinfulness, Jesus calls us not only to be zealous and repent, but to reestablish our fellowship with Jesus. Friends, the letter to Laodicea started with an imagery from a banquet, and Christ threatened to spit them out. But here he is at the end of the letter. Jesus is again portraying himself in the imagery of a banquet, and he's now calling the church to respond so that he may come in and have this meal with them. And of course, we see that the whole book of Revelation is ending with a, with a universal, with a great meal that, that Jesus is preparing for all those who will repent and trust in Christ. Oh, friends, if you are not a believer, this message that you hear the church give, the church in Laodicea, also applies to any of you who are outside of Christ, who do not have fellowship with Jesus. If you would hear the call of Christ to repent of your sin, to trust that Jesus is the only means to make us right with God, that Jesus is the one who has taken us, can take us out of the darkness of our rebellion, just as, as he has done to Cindy, just as he has done to many of us in, our, in this congregation, he can do for you if you turn away from your sin, repent, and trust in Christ. If you'd like to know more about what that means, we would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Go and either come and talk to any of us or speak to someone who's a Christian, what that means. But don't let this invitation that Jesus gives to those who are out of fellowship with him to pass you by. Jesus closes this letter with, with, a, with a promise. This, this word of, of hope, this promise of hope that Jesus gives is a promise not only to eat with Jesus and have fellowship with Jesus, but it's a promise to share in the authority that Jesus has, to sit on his throne. Look at verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Friends, Jesus closes this letter by promising those who have ears to hear that those who conquer will reign with Jesus. In other words, Jesus offers not only fellowship, Jesus offers the privilege of sharing within the authority that Jesus has received himself. Friends, when Jesus says, begin doing business with me, he's, he's also so much greater than any other business of this world that you could be doing business with. He gives us so much more than this world can offer us. 
if we want to boast in something, let our boast be not in what we have in and of ourselves, not in what we can accomplish by ourselves, but let our boast be in Jesus. In Christ, we have not only the riches of heaven. In Christ, we have the fellowship of His communion with God. In Christ, we also have the authority that God has shared with Jesus. What a promise that is. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has conquered sin and death. And because of that, Jesus has received authority from His Father. And now Jesus promises that all those who follow Him, who obey Him by faith, who follow a life that Jesus has Himself taken, will also enjoy in the destiny that Jesus has received from His Father. Oh, friends, Jesus knows what you and I think about ourselves. All the thoughts we have about ourselves, Jesus knows. Just as He knew what the church in Laodicea thought about him themselves, the kind of inner boasting that they took, the kind of self-sufficiency, the kind of self-dependency that perhaps may not have been visible to others around them, Jesus knew that about them. He knows what you and I think about ourselves. Our self-impression is not very reliable. Our self-impression is not the one that ultimately counts. Instead, Jesus' impression of us is what truly counts. We may appear really well to ourselves, to others around us, but it is Jesus' values and standards that really count. I love what St. Augustine said once in his confessions, For what am I to myself without you? but a guide to my own downfall. This is exactly what the church of Laodicea experienced. Without Christ and the center of their life as a church, this church was on a track to their own destruction, even though they were rich and self-confident. You can't be, can be confident, or you can be confident in the wrong things in this earth. And you may say that you can wing it, when it comes to spiritual things, to be wrong and yet confident is eternally devastating. The church in Laodicea knew how to avoid physical poverty. They knew how to be successful at accumulating possessions, but he was totally out of touch with how to be spiritually rich and how to be spiritually discerning. May that not be said of any of us.